Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's wonderful to be here. I'm normally at the 1045, um, and that's partly because I've got a little two-year-old daughter, uh, Nina, who I'm sure would love to be here, um, but she would also be tearing up and down the aisles, uh, soothing circuits, helping herself to the biscuits um, at the back on a regular basis. So we thought the 1045 is a slightly safer place um, for her. Um, uh, but Annie, my wife, and Nina will be here, and they'll arrive um, after the service, so um, do say hello to them as well if you've got a chance. Before I um, came to Oak Hill, I'm in my first year there at Oak Hill, I was a science teacher for 12 years. I taught in Ascot for seven years and in the Cotswolds um, for five years before then. Um, so it's wonderful to have moved to London. I'm really enjoying Oak Hill, really enjoying being here at um, Christchurch Barnet here um, for the last six months or so um, as well. Um, and we're diving into a great passage um, today, uh, into Genesis chapter uh, 3, um, and it'd be really helpful if you could um, grab a Bible, if you, um, or keep it open if you were looking at it earlier, because I will be uh, referring to that as we go uh, through, so Genesis 3 um, chapter 5. But as I said, before I came here to London, before I came to Oak Hill College to study, I was working as a science teacher. I worked in two schools in that time. And during my time as a teacher, I think you always meet, there's a couple of characters you'll always meet in the, in the staff room. And one of them is the teacher who is always counting down the days till the next holiday. There's a sort of knowing laugh. If any of your teachers, I'm sure, have worked in schools, I'm sure you know the character I am talking about. At the first day of term, September the 1st, they know there are 46 and a half days till half term in October. Uh, and they are ticking them off. And if you ask them how many days, they'll know exactly, to almost to the hour, how many days till the next holiday. And now, I didn't um, share that ticking down, sort of. I didn't, couldn't tell you the exact number of days. But I think the attitude I had as a teacher was often the same. How long until the next holiday? How long until the next break? I was always looking forward to it. Um, and then, but the thing is, once I got there, I felt like it was never quite as good as I'd hoped for. Maybe we'd gone away on holiday, I'd had a lovely time, I came back, and oh, I was tired. Oh, there was jobs around the house which hadn't been done. Or maybe we stayed at home, and I thought, oh, this is a bit boring, I'd rather be away. It's so easy to wish for more, to want uh, the next thing, to be restless. And my question for you this morning is, what about you? Are you satisfied? And what are you looking for, for that satisfaction? One Christian explained this many years ago. He said that we're always looking for the next thing by saying, our hearts are restless. Our hearts are restless. And I think that's what we see in today's passage. Restless hearts. Restless hearts that are lacking satisfaction. Now, these are such foundational verses in the Bible, such foundational verses. They explain so much of what we see around us in the world. They show us that there is an amazingly beautiful world, but a world that's so flawed. They show us the immense good we see in people, but also the profound evil that every human is capable of. And I think it's easy to read these words and think, did this really happen? Isn't this a bit far-fetched? A talking snake, two trees, God walking in the garden. And many people may tell us, well, no, this verses are impossible. This could have never happened. They may say, well, the story teaches you some important truths, 
but it couldn't have actually happened. But I think we need to be really clear, this really did happen. Adam and Eve were real people. They really existed. This episode did happen. Uh, if, you, if you want to talk to me more about that later, then do. But I think if we can think that God created the world out of nothing, if he was powerful enough to do that, then it's not too far-fetched to think that Adam and Eve were real people who really did exist. This episode really did happen. So let's dive into this passage today. In true Oak Hill student style, I have got three points uh, for us. Um, And my first point is from verses 1 to 5. Don't reject God's good word. Don't reject God's good word. Let's read verse 1 to 3 again. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, the first character we meet is the snake, the serpent. We're not told everything we might want to know about the snake, but we're told that he's in a position uh, to be tempting Adam and Eve. We're told that he's crafty. We're told that he's part of God's creation. Elsewhere in the Bible, the serpent's explicitly linked with the devil. So it seems like here we've got the devil turning up in paradise and starting this conversation with Eve. Did God really say... Did God really say? What a clever opening line. He doesn't start a conversation about the weather, about what's for lunch. He starts a conversation about God. So far, so good. The devil, very happy to talk about God. But notice how he does that. He misrepresents God. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Any tree in the garden. Is that what God said? Well, look back at verse 16 of chapter 2. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So here we see the devil subtly distorting, questioning God's words. He focuses on what God has prohibited rather than what God has provided. What God has prohibited rather than what God has provided. How does Eve reply? Verse 2. We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Did God say that? The devil may distort God's words, but Eve now does the same, and she also questions God's goodness. God hadn't said anything about not touching the tree. God here is being painted as harsh, restrictive, both by Eve and the serpent. But God had given Adam and Eve so much. He'd given them a whole garden. He'd given them paradise, everything in it. The only thing they were told not to do is to eat from one tree. So the serpent goes on, verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent questions God, God's truthfulness. Can Eve tell, trust that God is telling the truth? It's almost as Eve is, the devil is accusing Eve of taking God too literally. God did say that, but did he really mean it? And notice too how Eve and uh, the snake refer to God. If you look there in verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, you see it says, for God, but God. Um, but how is that different um, to the beginning of verse 1, if you look at chapter 2, you see in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, verse 8, 
uh, verse 15, how's God referred to there? We see in chapter 2, God is referred to the Lord God, Lord, L-O-R-D, in capitals there. Now, when our Bibles use that word, Lord, in capitals, they're actually using um, the word Yahweh, um, which is the personal name of God. It's the personal name of a God who is knowable, a God who is close, a God who loves his people. But how does the devil refer to God? The more distant term, God, Eve the same, more distant, God, distant, maybe unloving. So I think that's worth noting as we go through. There's so many dangers these verses highlight for us. How are we to respond? Well, I think a few things to think about. Firstly, talk to God, not about God. Talk to God, not about God. That's where the serpent starts, doesn't he? Eve follows. They're debating God not talking to him. The devil here is a winsome theologian. He loves to have a debate about God, but he's not talking to God. Now, I'm not saying never have conversations about God, um, but why are we having those conversations about God? Where do those conversations lead us? Are we interested in talking to God, or are we interested in questioning God and correcting God like Eve and the snake here? When we look at the Bible, are we academic or are we personal? When life is hard, do we talk about God? Do we talk to God? When life is good, do we talk to God? Because that's what we see all through the Bible, don't we? God's people talking to God. Just think of the Psalms. Psalm 3, Lord, how many are my foes? Psalm 4, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Psalm 5, listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Psalm 8, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. The psalmists, they know how to talk to God in every situation, good and bad and everything in between. God is loving, he's personal, he's distant, he's the Lord God, Yahweh. So let's talk to him, not about him. Secondly, be thankful. It's so easy not to be thankful, to be ungrateful, to think that God is stingy, just like Eve does here. If only I had more time in life, a bigger house, if only I had this, that, then, then I would be content, then I could praise God, then I would know that God loved me. But what has God given you? So much, so many material blessings. Just think now, what has God given you? What has God given you? How has God blessed you? I hope he's blessed you in many practical ways. But so much better than those practical ways maybe you can think of, are the spiritual blessings that God has lavished on you. If you are one of God's children, God could not have blessed you more. How have you been blessed spiritually? What are the spiritual blessings that you have? Well, a good place to dwell on that is Ephesians, first bit of Ephesians chapter 1. I'd recommend you reading that later if you want to think about some of those spiritual blessings. Ephesians 1 starts with, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And Paul goes on to list many of those blessings in that chapter. Well worth looking at. What one Christian said, A Christian should be an alleluia from head to toe. A Christian should be an alleluia from head to toe because a Christian could not be more blessed. Third thing I think we can see from these first five verses is that trusting God's word is the best thing to do. 
God loves us. It can be so tempting to think that we know better from God, than God. His words may need updating. We can, it's easier to go with what our culture says than what God's word says. For example, one, one example, our culture says to be fulfilled, you really need to be in a sexual relationship. God's word says to be fulfilled, you need to be in relationship with him. Whose word is better, our culture's word or God's word? For those of us who are single, for those of us who were married but maybe aren't any longer, for those of us who would love to be married but can't be for whatever reason, do we trust that God's words are good? Are we as a church encouraging each other to trust that God's words are good, even when they're hard, even when being faithful to God's word is countercultural? It's so easy to think that God who goes against our desires, can't love us. It's so easy to ignore a God uh, who we think is going against our desires. And that's what Adam and Eve do. And that is disastrous for them. Now, I'm not saying that we should be those who just struggle alone, who struggle without answering questions, without wrestling what God's word says to us. Do talk, do pray, do share your burdens. But it comes down to whose words are you going to trust? The words of our culture or God's words. Don't reject God's good words, but trust in them. Which leads to our second point in verses 6 to 8. Remember that sin promises much, but delivers little. Verse 6. Remember that sin promises much, but delivers little. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Eve is convinced here, isn't she? She desires that fruit. She looks at it. It looks so good. It looks so tasty. She desires the wisdom, and so she takes the fruit, and she eats. And this is what the Bible describes as sin, a small word, huge consequences. Sin. S-I-N was what I was taught as a child. Shove of God. S. I'm in charge. I. N. No to your rules. And I think this is what we are seeing here. Shove of God. They really are saying, shove of God. I don't care what you've said. I'm in charge. No to your rules. They're not just rule breakers. They are rule makers. They are taking um, the fruit. They want that wisdom for themselves. I think our culture often thinks sin is something a bit naughty, something a bit fun. But the Bible says the sin is very serious. Shove off God. I'm in charge. No to your rules. And what does that lead to here? What does this wisdom they desired lead to? They realized they were naked and they cover themselves in fig leaves. It's almost comical if it wasn't so tragic. It would be laughable covering themselves in fig leaves so guilty, so shameful, that they think that fig leaves will solve their problems. They thought that they would be wise, liberated, and free. And what does it lead to? Covering in fig leaves and hiding. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's a bit like a child. I don't know if you've experienced a child who has done wrong. What do they do when they're caught? They try and hide. Maybe they put their hands over their eyes uh, when the toddler's caught taking sweets that they shouldn't be. They cover their faces with their hands. Why? Because they think they can hide. They think they can hide from their parents. And it's laughable. 
when, we feel shame, um, when they feel shame and guilt, they try to hide. What about us when we feel shame and guilt? I guess we probably don't put our hands over our eyes. But it's so easy to think, defend ourselves, to say, oh, it's not my fault, or to blame others. Why? Because we're ashamed, because we're hiding. We don't take responsibility for our actions. And that is what happens here. The tree is created for Adam and Eve to enjoy their freedom. They're used to hide in. The park becomes a prison. They're trapped in their shame and guilt. I think it's worth acknowledging at this point that sin really is promising much to them. Sin really is enticing. Sin really does say it will bring satisfaction. For those of us who are parents, I think it's being worth being honest with our children, maybe grandchildren um, for some of us here, that you will face temptation. And when you're tempted, it will seem like satisfaction will come if you go in. I think if we only ever focus on the fact that sin is disappointing, then when temptation does come along, I think we can be unprepared for it. We can give in easily. But sin promises much and delivers little. The fruit was good to eat, desirable for gaining wisdom. As soon as they ate it, Adam and Eve hid because they were ashamed. God created our world. He knows how the people he created can flourish. Obeying God is the way to freedom. Adam and Eve thought that eating the fruit was the way to freedom. But obeying God is the way to true freedom. Living with God as our creator, that is how we can be satisfied. Sin promises much, delivers little. Adam and Eve reject God's word. And what does that lead to? It leads to rejecting God himself. We cannot reject God's words without rejecting God himself. So where do we go? Where are we left with? The Bible could have ended at this point. It would have been very short um, and a very sad story. But it could have ended at this point. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, My third point, turn to to your seeking God, verse 9 to 13. Turn to your seeking God. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? How do they respond? How do they respond? We see God walking in the garden, Adam and Eve hiding. God is seeking, Adam and Eve rejecting. God is calling. How do they respond? Verse 10. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Now, I don't know if you notice all the irony uh, in these verses. Adam claims he's hiding because he's heard God, but it's precisely his lack of hearing that's led to his hiding. We see Adam using speech. He should be using it to uh, bind himself to Eve, but actually he uses it to alienate himself from her. Adam blames Eve for what's happening, which is really not very fair. It's a bit rich. What's he been doing all this time? Verse 6 suggests, if you look back at verse 6, her husband, who was with her. Adam has been right there all along, watching. What's he been doing about Adam talking to the snake? What's he been doing about her eating the fruit? Absolutely nothing. He has abdicated his God-given responsibility. Who was that command given to in chapter 2? The command not to eat the fruit was given to Adam, not to Eve. 
and yet he watches her and does nothing. And only now that it's gone wrong does he blame her. It's so easy to be like Adam, isn't it? To be those who abdicate our responsibility. God calls us to speak his word to those around us, not to watch on and then blame others when things go wrong. And notice, it's not just he's blaming his wife. Who else is he blaming? Who else is he blaming? Verse 12, the woman you put here with me, implying that if God hadn't put Eve in the garden, probably everything would still be okay. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Adam blames Eve. Adam blames God. Eve blames the serpent, each one denying responsibility for their actions. So what hope is there? What hope is there at this point of the Bible? Well, we'll hear more next week. Next time we'll see God's judgment, God's right judgment on Adam and Eve. But we'll also see his mercy. We'll also see God's mercy right at the beginning, God's judgment and his mercy mixed together. But we know this is not where the story of the Bible ends. What is the story of the Bible? The story of the Bible is a story of a God seeking his people, a God seeking his people despite their rejection of him, a God calling out to his people. Adam and Eve reject God, and who are we like in this story? We might like to think that we wouldn't have been like Adam and Eve, but that is us deceiving ourselves. We are just like them. The Bible is very clear that each one of us is just like Adam. We are guilty, just as Adam was guilty. We are just as guilty as him. We reject God and his word. We hide from God. It's so easy to hide from God, just like Adam and Eve did. And if we left, left to our own devices, that is where we would still be. Left to our own devices, that is where we would still be. We would be on our own, in the trees, hiding from God. But how did God respond to Adam and Eve? God came down, he walked in the garden, he called out to them. He walked in the garden and called out to them. And that is the story of the Bible, which is our story. A God walking in the garden, calling out to us. A holy God seeking a sinful people. We see this with Israel, don't we? A holy God calling a sinful nation to himself. But most clearly we see a holy God walking with sinful people in the person of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who came down and walked with us. He came down to walk among sinful humanity, even becoming one of us. Jesus, friend of sinners, but not a sinner. Jesus, tempted, but faithful to his Father. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus, who promised to be with his people always until the very end of the age. Jesus, who sent his spirit not just to be with his people, but to dwell in his people. Adam and Eve, what did they do? They took and ate what was forbidden. They were those who betrayed God. Jesus was the one who was betrayed himself. And on the night that he was betrayed, what did he do? He took and ate. He took bread and having broken it, gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. 
And this is the taking and the eating that we are called to do. Adam took for himself. Jesus gave himself for others. Turn to your seeking God. I started with that quote, our hearts are restless. Our hearts are restless. But that is only the first half of that quote. The quote goes on, our hearts are restless until they can find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they can find their rest in you. Will you find your rest in the Lord Jesus this week? Maybe you don't know God as your heavenly father. He is the one who promises you true and lasting rest. Will you come to him? What will bring you satisfaction? Don't look to yourself. Don't look to what the world will offer. Accept that God's words are true. Reject sin that promises much but delivers little. And turn to your seeking God. Let's pray as we finish. Lord, help us to turn to you. Thank you that the Lord Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Oh, how we need him. Oh, how we need him. May our restless hearts find rest in you now and for the rest of our lives. Amen.